0: Hi folks, a very quick announcement before we get started on the episode this week, and that is a huge thank you to Katie Unicorn-Stewart. I don't know if your middle name really is Unicorn, if it is, that is an awesome name. So the fabulous Katie Unicorn-Stewart gave us a recent review on Apple Podcasts about the recent Governance Summit Summary. So five stars for Take On Board, she says, loved the recent Governance Summit Summary podcasts, super useful. Katie, happy to help, thank you so much and thanks for taking the time to do a review. So a little prompt for others that might be listening, I love it when I get reviews and you might get read out on the pod as well. So get in there and work out how to do ratings and reviews and let me know what you think of the pod. All right, on with the show. (laughs) Today on the Take On Board podcast, I'm speaking with Michelle Cutler about conflicts of interest. Before we start that discussion, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record today. For me, I am on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past and present and any First Nations people that might be listening today. I acknowledge their continuing connection to land, waters, sky and culture. I support the Uluru Statement from the heart, despite the referendum, and I encourage others in the Take On Board community to do the same. Now, let me introduce Michelle. Michelle is on the board of Sean Parker & Company, a small modern dance company known for its diversity and social commentary works. She's previously been on the boards of Address Housing and Give a Smile. Michelle started her working life as a lawyer in Asia before moving to London to work in business advisory across Europe and the US. She's been back in Australia for the past 10 years, working as the CEO in the not-for-profit and membership association sector. Her last role was the CEO of Community Legal Centres Australia. At the moment, she's working with a small number of clients focusing on strategic planning and governance, a woman after my own heart. Welcome to the Take On Board podcast, Michelle. Thank you so much, Thank you for having me. So, Michelle, before we dig into conflicts of interest, which is... Oh my god! such a, I think such an interesting conversation. Not everybody gets excited by conflicts of interest, but I think they should be. Michelle, so before we dig into conflicts of interest, let's dig a little bit deeper about you. Tell me about your upbringing. What lessons did you learn? What did you get up to? What were the leading influences on how you thought and what you did?
1: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Australia and I mean, I had what I would say was a a pretty nice and I had a very nice upbringing. But I guess one of the things that I think really did end up shaping me to end up becoming who I am and living and working, I guess, around the world and and being what I'm interested in is I have this memory of when we were, you know, probably in primary school of sitting around the kitchen table and all the walls were covered in mats. And so we always had these discussions around about the world. And some of it was, you know, questioning what's the, Capital of France and, you know, testing your knowledge in a nice way, not in a horrible way, but it was always this conversation around the world. And so I grew up, I guess, being really conscious that there was a whole world outside of Australia. And I think that that my parents in some ways sort of came to regret that because I left Australia for so long because I was always curious what was out there and you're not going to go and see it if you don't actually go and see it. And so I've always, I guess, grown up with this really keen awareness that there is a whole world out there. I've got a lot of family around the world and I always have. So there was always people to go and visit, which was very lucky to go and stay with. But it was always this awareness that there was always another world out there. And I guess when I kind of look back at the roles I've done and where I've done them, and then I guess in some ways also my style about my management style or my leadership style, it is always coming from a place of I acknowledge that there are is another way or many other ways of seeing, of doing, of thinking about issues. And I think that's been quite key to me. And obviously, you can be in situations where you have a discussion with someone and you think, well, I always disagree with you, and that's fine. But I do think it's something that has helped me to maybe just take on that there are always other ways of doing things. And people have come from a very different Upbringing or place or understanding. And I guess the opposite, they may not have either. So they may also not have come from this place of thinking that there possibly are so many different views or ways of doing things. And so, yeah, I have spent a lot of time overseas and in many different capacities. You know, I worked as a lawyer overseas. I spent months and months throughout my life packing overseas. So I guess I think that just shapes your view and your worldview. And when you go into even a negotiation or you go into a boardroom, You'd sit down and I don't assume everyone around the table is just like me.
0: The world is a big and exciting place.
1: Yes. And I think now people are so keen to get back out there as well. Like we feel like we've spent the past few years being so preciously and acutely aware of how important it has been to travel and to sort of not being able to do it, whether it's nationally or internationally, where now it's just reminded us that we need to get out there and see other things, meet other people.
0: There's loads I want to dig into there, you know, about where family is and meeting family, traveling and experiences. We could spend the whole time talking about travel. However, I'm going to stop myself, which is I love that topic of conversation because conflicts of interest. I'd love to have a chat about that. I think this topic came up, someone had posted something in a Facebook group about it, and that's how we ended up having this conversation. So conflicts of interest, it's the sort of thing, you know, it's on the agenda often at the start of every board meeting. Has anyone got any conflicts? No, you know, move on. Well, I think it's a really interesting topic to play with and explore. So tell me, where should we start this conversation about conflicts of interest? In fact, what is a conflict of interest? Let's start there. I think that you've just raised something
1: which I think is really important, which is at the beginning of every board meeting, there is that sort of item, that line on the agenda, conflicts of interest, which everyone kind of goes no or shuffles their feet or we just pass over it because it's just something standard and no one actually kind of thinks about it. Now, obviously, some people do and some people have wide-ranging conversations about it, but I've been in plenty of boardrooms where it's almost just skipped over. And so, I think it is something I think that people do need to pay attention to. So, just the other thing I always like to bear in mind with conflicts of interest is, you know, I guess along the lines of what I just said, lots of different people have lost different views about actually what a conflict of interest is and then relatedly how important it is and whether it's material or not. And so I think one of the things as well as to start that conversation is, is actually it's not like there is there is legislation there's guidelines around how you deal with it but actually what is one what really should be a conversation around the boardroom as to whether or not it's a material conflict and and how people deal with it and i think for people who aren't lawyers or don't have legal backgrounds it can be this thing where oh my god i'm really scared what does the law say about it whereas i think if you kind of step back and say actually it is a conversation then I think that enables the whole boardroom to then get involved with it because ultimately I do think that it is a subject matter where it is common sense and it is one of those things where you can have a pub test or a smell test about it like does this feel right does this look right how we think this is going to show up on our reputation so yes of course there's law around it but it is also something that Everyone, regardless of their background or their particular qualifications, can have a conversation around whether it's a conflict of interest. I think that's kind of the first step to look at.
0: Is there a time maybe in your experience where the board has done that well? Actually I was gonna say where the board's done that well. It might even be where the board's not done it well. Where the board's not (laughs) Yeah. Well, and in as much detail as you're able to share. Absolutely. And I think in
1: particular when you're in the not for profit space, it's pretty common for there to be conflicts of interest around the boardroom and for example I've worked in federated associations and organisations so quite often in a federated association if you're on the national board so for example I've been a national CEO twice the board is made up of representatives from the states or from the state branches and so they may be the state president or chair or it might just be someone from the state but equally, it's not uncommon for a not-for-profit to have a board which is made up of representatives of different stakeholders. And I think that's where the potential conflict then arises. When you have a discussion which concerns a particular stakeholder or a particular state, then you've got a conflict because you're asking someone to make a decision and contribute to a discussion where they actually do have two interests and those interests quite possibly will be in conflict. And I think that's where people then get confused or uncomfortable. How do I tell this person across the table? Actually, I think that's a conflict of interest and you should or should not be doing something about it right now. And I think that's where it can be quite tricky for people to have that really open, open conversation. For example, I was a CEO of a federated association. We had on the board representatives of all the states. And so there are times when you're going to have a conversation and the thing that you're talking about may impact one or more states differently or completely differently from that. It might be that I've been in a situation where we're looking for supply of certain goods and someone around the table will say, oh, you know, my brother-in-law or my nephew or my son or whatever works in that field and they can either give us some advice or they can supply. Or... And so it is the question of how do you deal with that? And to turn it to a positive spin it might be that that ends up putting the organisation in a really good position because they can get the cheapest price or whatever. But it's kind of not as simple as that. And I think that's where, I guess, in my experience, my advice would be that we just kind of breathe and pause and think, okay, so this is an option. It's not the answer. And how do we all as a board feel about this relationship and where that might... I've also been in rooms where you know, there's very strong personalities on the board and are they dominating that conversation and, you know, should they be participating in some conversations? Because, you know, that could inhibit a sort of more open discussion around whether we use their nephew's supply company or whatever. So I think it is, I think the starting point is it is quite likely in the not-for-profit space that there will be conflicts and so how do you set up your boardroom that, having this conversation is quite a normal conversation and that you've got a process in place where there is a conflict, then what do you do about it? And as long as that's transparent, I think that makes the conversation a bit easier.
0: One thing I often remind people about conflicts or interests is that it's a declaration of interests that you are making, not a declaration of conflict. Yeah, that's such a good point. It's not for the individual to decide whether there is a conflict. You declare your interests and then the group, the board in this instance, will decide collectively whether there is a conflict and if there is what to do about it.
1: I think that's really important. And it also gives it a more positive spin so that you're just saying, look, I am often you'll be on a board because you, throughout your career, you've done things, you've joined organisations, you know, you're someone who's active in that particular sector. And so, of course, people want you on the board, but obviously the path that you've taken to get there has mean you've been involved. And so, of course, you're going to have and I think that's right, that it is this, you have interests and that's not a problem. Having the interests is not the problem, it's the managing of them. And so it might be that you're on a, a peak body and there's more than one peak body in that particular sector, or you're on the board of one of the stakeholders of the organisation. And so the conversation around that particular stakeholder, and I've been in a situation exactly like this, you can contribute and really add value and give some information and so I think that's all valued. Your interest is actually providing valuable information to the organisation. But if there's a decision whether or not you, for example, use them or they supply something, then you probably aren't the best person to be voting on that particular one. But again, I just to follow up on what you said, I think that's right. You say, this is my interest. I've got this particular interest. And then it's up to the, the board to say, well, we're happy that you can either stay in the room contribute to the discussion, vote on the particular issue. It's not just your call. You can't just say, oh, no, no, I'm really comfortable. I don't have a conflict. It's not just up to you. It is up to the whole board. I mean, ultimately, the whole board is responsible for the decisions of the board. So I think that's where I think people also get confused that it's not just to them. Like It is a group decision. The board has to make that decision of how they're going to treat your various interests. So it's not just all up on one person, which I think sometimes gives people comfort as well to know that it's not only on them to know how they have to, how they resolve that that conflict.
0: So it's interesting then, like the, the example you gave before about the federated model is a very common one for federated organisations. And there are lots of, Australia is a federated country. So there are lots of federated models in all sorts of different areas. In that instance, what have you seen Because often the person, you're not declaring it's like I'm the Victorian rep or I'm the WA rep or whatever it may be. It's completely known and that's why you've got that spot in the boardroom. So what works well, what have you seen that works well in terms of managing those conflicts that, that come up? What are some of the things that you've seen?
1: Yeah, so I've seen a number of different things that I guess work well and don't work well. And I think when you specifically, if you're talking about a board that's got representatives on it, so it might be that they're state representatives or it might be a stakeholder representative. So I agree, yes, everyone, for example, might know you're the Victorian rare. I like it when there's a separate document which has your interests rather than your conflicts because you don't know if the conflict can do a topic or particular decision the interests. And so it might be that you're a member of the Victorian branch, but it also might be that you have other interests in the sector or in other related bodies. And I just think you know, one document that is updated as it needs to be updated works well. Because some people, for example, just put it in the minutes. So oh, we had this discussion and this particular board member noted that they were XYZ. But that's fine for that particular discussion. But three months later, six months later, twelve months later, people can't remember. Maybe someone new's on the board. You've got to have a document that that actually is there and is updated with people's with people's interests. And I think I've seen this work in terms of like coming to a discussion point, and in particular in a federated model, I don't have a problem with, say, for example, you're the Victorian rep, and there's a subject matter that's quite dear to the Victorian branches board member from Victoria saying in Victoria this is how we think about this issue or these are the issues that this particular decision we're making is going to how it's going to impact on Victoria that's fine and i think that you know all states could then have that discussion as well but if it's a particular decision that the person who's coming from Victoria really is conflicted in their head or there's competing interest then i do think it's incumbent on that board to say We've heard what you've had to say, but now you either need to leave the room while we have a discussion without you in it. And it depends on the organisation. Like it might be that that isn't necessary, that that person's quite ha- comfortable to sit and not then contribute to the next bit of the discussion or the other directors might think, oh, if they can leave, then we can, what we perceive, we can have a fuller, frank discussion without them, which is the Victorian person, for example, has to leave without thinking bad things about everyone talking about them. And then if there needs to be a vote, then in my view that the person from Victoria on the board cannot vote and it should be noted in the minutes as well that they didn't vote. So note that they left the room if they left the room and note when the decision was made, the resolution was had passed, for example, and then that they came back into the board. And that's, I guess, the sort of the gold standard of what you need to do. And and you don't have to do that all the time. But I also think it's that this is where I think, you know, you come back to the pub test. if you say to someone, oh, we made this decision, and you just think an ordinary normal person, you know, sitting there in the having a glass of wine goes, Oh, that sounds a bit awkward. Well, that's probably the right reaction if you didn't, you know, if you didn't do the right or the wrong thing. Because I just I think it is not that complicated at all. You you made a decision with them in the room or they participated in the decision. Like I think we all kind of get the feeling if it's not really the appropriate way of doing things.
0: Because that's part of the challenge of conflicts. Like there is potentially reputation, well, there's all sorts of potential damage, but reputational damage if people have been involved in decisions that they shouldn't have been involved in that don't look right when you're having the conversation down the pub.
1: Yeah. And so, I mean, that's, I think that, and there also are legal implications, obviously, in terms of if they, if you're a director and you might have breached your director duties in terms of your obligations to the organisation. It's not hard to sort of Google... With a legal position, and there's plenty of examples of good policies and things that you can use and and start to have that conversation around. So, I think it is a reputational issue, and I think that's a really key one, especially in the not for profit space or the membership association space. If your stakeholders or your members come to know that a decision was made in a way that just kind of doesn't sound that great. That's really hard to come back from. It's really hard to explain away. And reputation is key. It's everything. If you've lost that, it's really hard to get back.
0: Yes. What are some other ways, like the federated model is a, as I say, it's a pretty common one, particularly in Australia, which is a federated country. What are some other ways or some other examples of where this might come up just to prompt people's thinking about this? What are some other ways that a conflict might come up?
1: So, I mean, there's lots of the obvious ones in terms of, so you might be a representative body, but yes, you might be in terms of supplying, and often you get you know, directors will give advice to the company if they're, if they're professional, and that can be also sort of fraught with danger. But there's other instances. So, for example, if you're recruiting directors and you're looking for directors, and I think in the not-for-profit space, this one will come up is in particular if you're looking for a director with fundraising skills. You really want that expertise and you you really need that expertise. But I guess the question is what's that target market if you're fundraising and is there a conflict or a crossover and and how do you as a board feel about that? Like personally, I would feel very awkward if I was the director in question that I was supposed to be giving advice with respect to particular expertise that I had, but I was doing it for two organisations at the same time. and. Whilst particular expertise, for example, like fundraising or stakeholder management, donor engagement, that might be really key and you might go, oh, no, no, they'll be great. They can teach us so much or we really need that expertise. I think there's a real danger of then not actually being able to use that expertise because if you're planning an event or a fundraising drive or something and they're talking to the same people, then that person – I don't know. Do they need to leave the room? Can they contribute? You can't waste your director spot on that as well. So I think that can be really hard as well. And so it's that thing of well, who are we looking at being on our board and why, and who are we engaging with as our stakeholders? And, and so I think that can also it all, can also come up there. I mean, I've seen, for example, different constitutions where people will say that directors can obviously give services to the organisation, but they're not allowed to be paid for it. So it doesn't matter that they. Even if they go to attend a tender process and they're the cheapest, it doesn't matter. You actually just can't take any fee for services at all, which I think that's obviously a decision for each particular board. But I think that then makes it quite clear. So I guess it's that conversation that they people need to have. And you know, there's plenty of complex policies online to download and start as a conversation from. And I think that's it. Where you've got an agreed set process and policy that everyone knows they have to follow.
0: From the conversation that we've had today, what are the key things you want people to take away from what we've spoken about?
1: I think that it is a real topic that shouldn't just be something that is flipped over at the top of a board meeting, but it actually is there for a reason. That it is inherent in being a director, that, you know, one of your duties as a director is to manage the conflicts of interests, and that actually it's got up to you. You you, you can declare your interests But that has to be a discussion among all members of the board as to what your process is for managing that. And I think that when you get it into being a group discussion, as apart from, oh, it's only my obligation and responsibility, I think that does make it a bit easier because you're then more likely to say, okay, we need a process because it's obviously not going to just happen to one person. It's going to be something which could happen to anyone around the table. Therefore, we need to have a process. So I think that's That's it. But it is a discussion. And I guess lastly, as we've touched on that, you know, if you get it, if you ignore it, the reputational damage is something that I think is really going to be quite significant. And that's quite hard to come back from.
0: You've said a couple of times that you can Google and find resources. So I'm wondering, A, if you've got a favourite spot where people might find some of these policies, or is there another resource, or maybe it's and or, is there another resource you would like to share with the Take On Board community? So, I mean,
1: I guess in terms of, like, conflicts, I know that, like, ASCD obviously has some stuff on there. They you, you have, you know, statements. The Institute of Community Directors normally has policies, and, fact, like I looked just before this, they do have a conflicts policy. And I would always say about anything you download, obviously read it and it's going to have to be amended. Like, it has to be tailored and made suitable for your organisation. But it is, there's definitely there and, and available and in terms of then, I guess, further reading around conflicts, what I like to do is where are you getting that information from? And mostly lots of the law firms will put out two pages and things. And so, you know, you're getting it from a good, credible source rather than just on a random website, which you don't really know who's written it. So it's definitely a discussion, but there's lot there are lots of resources, credible, good resources out there as well to use.
0: So we will make sure there is a link to the Australian Institute of Company Directors and the Institute of Community Directors Australia in the show notes. And I think the ACNC, the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission, also has a standard around conflicts. So we'll make sure there's a link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, their website's very good, actually. The ACNC is very good with lots of good guidance and information on it as well.
0: And examples and case studies as well that are relatable, which is very valuable. (laughs) Oh, Michelle, thank you so much for uh, taking the call when we're like, oh, let's talk about conflicts of interest. And you're like, I can do that. Great. So thank you for taking the call. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your wisdom with the Take On Board community today. Lovely to speak with you. Thank you. So that's a wrap for the Take On Board podcast today. Thank you so much for being here and being part of the Take On Board community. I do this podcast because I love bringing good women and gender diverse people together. So I invite you to join us over in the Take On Board Facebook group, an active group that helps, supports and cheer squads each other. Just search Take On Board on Facebook to find us. I'd also really love it if you could do some of the other, well, podcast things. Share the podcast with someone you know who might get some value from our discussions. Subscribe if you haven't already. And well, I also really love it when people rate and review. Thanks again for being part of the Take On Board community. Now go and put these tips, tricks and advice into action so you can be your best in the boardroom.